this week. Ooh, that is really loud. I'd have to use my inside voice. There's not much chance of that. Uh, this week I found out that three pastors, um, one of which was a, is a good friend of mine, were having to resign their churches due to infidelity. I felt like I'd been punched in the gut. I began to wonder, what causes Christians to do things like this? I mean, we all know pastors aren't the only people who commit these sort of things. Chances are we all know, you know what we might call regular people who have committed adultery. It's also not just men who do things like this. Statistically speaking, women commit adultery just about as often as men do. It's also not just adultery or even sexual sins that Christians commit. At one time or another, we've all heard of or known Christians that did sinful things that just sort of blew our minds and, and made us wonder what in the world they were thinking. And all this stuff got me to wondering, what causes it? I mean, what causes Christians to commit these sorts of sins? In most of these situations that we know of, it is genuine Christians who do this. It's far too easy an answer to say they weren't really Christians or they wouldn't have done it. In most of these situations, they were people who genuinely believed in Jesus and professed a love for Jesus. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought of the idea of drifting and the warning that's found in the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And the word heed, it means to give our attention to or to listen to very carefully. And the author said that we must give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. He's giving great stress to the idea of holding on tightly to them. And he says that if we don't do this, we will begin to drift away. And it's the image of drifting away that I think ought to haunt us. Because it's not the, the picture of making a huge and decisive step away from Jesus. Instead, it is a slow but consistent progression away from Jesus. The word that is translated as drift often carried with it the idea of, of carelessness. I mean, just think about that for a second. It's not so much the idea that someone just necessarily rejects Scripture or Jesus. Instead, it's the idea that they become careless about being earnest with the faith. They become careless about Scripture and their relationship with Jesus. They become careless about caring for their souls. And they begin a slow, steady drift away from Jesus. John Piper said, remember this, there is no standing still in the Christian life. Either we are advancing towards salvation or we are drifting to destruction. There are only two possibilities in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. Either we heed the word of the Lord or we drift away from it. There is no sitting still in the river of indifference. Its current runs downstream to the falls. Therefore, verse 3 asks, How shall we escape God's just, just retribution if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglecting our great salvation means not giving heed to what has been revealed by the Son, not setting our attention on Jesus. And the result will be drifting away from the Word and therefore from salvation. And I tend to think of it the idea of drifting like I did when we did land navigation in the army. Do land navigation, you're given a map and a compass and points that you're supposed to find. And what you do is you have point one, two, three, four, and five, and you, you figure out where you are on the map first, and then you find out, okay, I have to go from here to there. And you plot it on your map, and you get the azimuth on your compass, and you have to walk in that direction. And if you've ever seen a compass, you know that the tick marks for the different degrees, they're very close together. I mean, they're, they're very close together. And you'd think, gosh, if I just walked 
a little bit off here, one or two off there, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Right? Because one degree makes a huge difference over a period of time. The further you go, the further away from your destination you arrive at. And, and at a thousand meters, with one degree off, you'd be a hundred meters from your, your desired destination. And you think a hundred meters, that's not that big of a deal. But in land navigation, that's huge. Right? Because in land navigation, you're not going out necessarily to look for a building out in the middle of the woods where you can just look around. As a general rule, what they had was there would be a fence post stuck out in the middle of the woods with a number on it. And you had to find the fence post and write the number down on your piece of paper. And if you're 100 meters off, you can't just randomly walk around and find it. Right? Instead, what you have to do is you have to, to find your azimuth. And then you have to stick to it very, very carefully so that you can get there. And a part of what makes this a problem is every one of us, we have a natural drift when we walk. Every one of us, if you were to just take off and, and walk and not pay attention to walking directly to that thing, you would find that you either drift to the left or that you drift to the right. It's just a natural drift that all of us have. When you do that through, say, woods and things like that, the drift becomes more pronounced. So you have to be very careful, or you will drift away from your azimuth and not arrive anywhere near your desired destination. And in my mind, that's a lot like our spiritual lives. There is a place that we want to arrive at. In order to get at the place where we want to arrive at, you can't just generally go in a be a good person kind of direction. You have to go in a specific direction, the way that's laid out by Scripture. You have to do this knowing that there is a, a pull against this. That each of us has a natural drift away from the truth. Away from following Jesus. And if we're not careful, we'll let that drift lead us further and further away. And it's not a, a big drift. It's little things here and little things there. But the fact is, little steps here and little drifts there, they add up over time. Until the person who has drifted one day wakes up and they look and they're like, how did I get here? How did I ever wind up in this position doing this in this place? And I think most of the time it is carelessness that does it. I've not known, I don't know that I have known anyone that at one point was fully devoted to Jesus. That at some point blew up away from Jesus that took big decisive steps. I don't know any of them. There were little, little shifts here, little shifts there. On top of that, I don't know any that just woke up and said, I think I'm going to walk away from Jesus. Slowly, but surely. But instead, they just began to make small compromises. They just began to take little steps and little drifts until they got so far away and even know how to get back to where they needed to be. It wasn't that they decided to abandon Jesus. It wasn't that they said, I'm through with the Bible. And I think in a lot of cases, it's not even that they really wanted to do that. They just began to drift a little bit here and a little bit there. And the longer they went, the longer they drifted, the further and further they got away. And, and chances are, we know people that have made these sort of mistakes and have done these sort of things. And if you knew them, you could say it wasn't a big step. It was a small thing here and a small drift there that added up over time. 
And since this is the case, the little drifts over time add up. We're going to depart from our study in the Gospel of John for a few weeks. And I want us to focus on the issue of what I'm calling soul care. And today we're going to start a series that I'm calling It Is Well With My Soul. And I chose this particular picture to use because of the stormy waves. Storms of life are a given. Contrary to what passes for popular theology today, there is no way to avoid the storms of life. Storms of life come because we live in a fallen world. Storms of life come because other people make decisions that affect us. The storms of life come because we make bad decisions that bring the storms into our own lives. And in each of these situations, we have to be sure that all is well with our souls so that we can make it through the storm. And we're starting this series with a message that's called, Is It Well With My Soul? Is It Well With Your Soul? See, I'm convinced that the drift begins because it is not well with our souls. We begin to neglect the things that keep us close to Jesus. We begin to be neglectful of what makes it well with our souls and the drift begins. And chances are in the room today there are some and it is well with your soul. You are as close to Jesus as you have ever been. There is no drift in your life and you are not at all negligent. That is wonderful. There are also some in this room today that have started the process of being negligent about their soul. They have stopped being as earnest about taking heed to things and the drift has begun. And then there are likely some in here today and you have been neglectful of your soul for quite some time. You have drifted so far away. You have no idea how you could ever get back on course again. And the message today my, my hope, my prayer, that the message today would be a help to you, regardless of which one of those describe you. If it is well with your soul, this will encourage you to continue to do those things that will make it well with your soul. It will just encourage you that you're already doing the things that are right and true. If you are starting to drift, it will bring this to your attention, hopefully. God will work through this to reveal it to you so that you can make course corrections early on. And if it is not at all well with your soul and you are way off course, my prayer is that this will call your attention to what you've done, give you hope that you can be restored and point you back into the right direction. And if there was a main thought, I thought, because we're going to be going all over the place today, it's not just one passage we're looking at, what would be the main thought, just one idea? And it would be this. A well soul is a result of intentional care. A well soul is the result of intentional care. Being negligent, just drifting through life, that will not make it well with your soul. That will not make it anywhere near. You will drift away, sure, as we're here today. It takes intentional effort on all of our parts to make sure that it is well with our souls, that we stay on the right course. So what I want to do today is I want to give, give us three, three actions to take so that we can be sure that it is well with our souls. Number one is to be aware of your fallen nature. Be aware of my fallen nature. I think one of the most dangerous things that we can do and one of the most foolish mistakes that we can make is to think that we are beyond failing. 
it is easy for us to look at others who make these mistakes and to set in judgment upon them. To think I would never. There's no way I would. The reason for that is not that we're bad people, but it's that we have a fallen nature. Each and every one of us still wrestle with sin. Each and every one of us have temptations that pull at our lives. That, that they're temptations because they tempt us. They're temptations because we desire them and we would do them if the situation was so. And your temptation, it, it may not be sexual sin. But there is a temptation. For some, the temptation may be greediness and embezzlement. It may be lying and gossip. It, it may be any, any number of things. Here's what I know. Whatever your temptation is, it is there. It is real. And right now you are thinking about what it is. You know what you're tempted by. You know the pool that is within you. And Scripture tells us that this struggle is always going to be there. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There is a battle raging inside each and every one of us every day of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. There is the Spirit of God that says do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And there is our sinful nature that calls us to go in the opposite direction. It is pulling us away from the things that God wants us to do and it leads us to do the things that we know are wrong. And this struggle is going on within each one of us all the time. Some days we have victory and it's easier than it is at others, but some days it is far more difficult and we are given to defeat. And I love what God told to Cain just before Cain killed his brother. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, look at this, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. I mean, that is, that is every one of us today. And every one of us, our sinful nature, sort of crouching, lying in wait, looking for an opportunity to pounce on us and to control us. Right? I mean, that's the, always the desire of sin in our sinful nature. Our sinful nature is never content to allow us to, to walk partly in the world and partly with the Lord. Our sinful nature at first will try to tell us that you can, you can walk in both worlds and it'll be okay. But it won't be. It never will be. Right? Because the Spirit of God within us is always going to be trying to draw us fully into God's way. And the flesh, once it gets us to step foot in its way, it's going to say... Well, isn't that Jesus stuff making you miserable? Wouldn't it be more fun if you just gave wholeheartedly along into this way? Its desire is to control us. Always. To, to take control of our lives. And to lead us headlong into sin. Until we, we destroy our lives. And we destroy our families. And we ruin our testimonies. And the sinful nature will take over our lives if we're not aware of it and we're not constantly fighting it. So we must have humility of mind to recognize and accept that we are flawed and imperfect humans. We still have a, a sinful nature at work within us and it makes us vulnerable to giving in to temptation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1, page 875 in your pew Bibles.
1 Corinthians 10, Paul reviews some of the things that God had done for Israel. And he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Right? God led them, God provided for them, God cared for them. But despite all that God had done, look at what it says in verse 5. But now with most of them, God was not pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But for, for most of them, God was not pleased. I want you to think about that. These are the people that God brought out of Egypt. These are the people that God led to the edge of the promised land. And these are the people that it says God, most of them, God was not pleased. And because of that, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, that's a terrible thought to think about. God delivered them. And yet, for some reason, they caused God to, to judge them punish them. And it was because of their sin and their rebellion against God. Look at verse 7 and notice just some of the sins that Paul chose to, to focus on. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And idolatry for them was real idolatry. They bowed down to idols and they worshipped the things since they created. For us, that would not be so much of an issue. But for us, idolatry would be simply putting something other than God ahead of ourselves. Or someone other than God in that place of, of preeminence in our lives. And I would say, in all likelihood, the greatest idol any of us wrestle with is the idol of us. And I, I don't know how you are, but I, I, would, I would venture to say it is likely that if you're like me, your favorite person in the world is you. You look at them when you look in the mirror. You see the person you are probably most concerned about in all things. You want them to be happy. You want them to enjoy their lives. You want them to be pleased. And when you put that person in the mirror's happiness and joy and pleasure ahead of God, that is, that is idolatry. It's really all that it boils down to. He goes on and he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Sexual immorality, we, we know about that. Verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them did, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this is interesting. One of my commentaries said that the idea here is that they tried his patience. And they tried his patience by seeing how far they could go before he would punish them. Right now, I had to wrap my mind around that for a second. They tried his patience by seeing how far they can go before they punished him. How many of you have kids? And how many of you now know exactly what he's talking about there? Don't touch that. I'm not touching it. Right? How close they can get. How, how much. Look, I'm not touching it, Mom. I'm not touching it, Dad. I'm not doing it. I didn't disobey you. Right? That's the image. That Paul is talking about here. That's what they did. The commentary goes on to say that believers often feel that God expects too much. That they're missing out on something in the world. And often they feel that God will forgive them even if they, they do look. Or even if they do taste. Or even if they do touch. Or even if they do slip a little bit. Or even if they do hold a little back. And, and the idea that he's getting across there is that the people say, I know this is wrong. But God forgives, right? So I'm going to do it anyway. I know 
that God always forgives if, I am, if He is faithful and just forgive me if I confess my sin. Boom, I'm going to do it. Forgive me, Lord. And that is how they tested the Lord. That is how we test the Lord. In verse 10. Now, I won't get much into this because I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad today. Nor complained. Some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. They, they weren't just killed by anybody. They were destroyed by someone called the destroyer. They complained. They complained against God. They complained against His provision. They complained against His deliverance and His protection of them. <laughs> and that is, that's pretty rough to think about. That maybe the sin that you're tempted by is the sin of complaining. But either way, these sins are all fairly common to us. And Paul writes in verse 6 and 11, Now these things became our examples to the intent that that we should not lust after the things as they also lusted. In verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the, the ages have come. And, and here's what he's saying. God had Moses and other biblical authors write down the way people sinned and the way God dealt with it for us. So that we could see, for one thing, we're not the first people to deal with this kind of sin. We're not the first people in the world to deal with this kind of temptation. To see that, that yes, the people of God in times past sinned against God. They weren't perfect. But to see that those who persisted in continual rebellion against God, they also faced the judgment of God. They faced the swift justice of God. Now, Paul knows that some would say, right, First, some would say, well, I'm the exception to the rule. Verse 6 and 11 say, no, you're not. In Galatians, he will write, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. That which you sow, you will also reap. You and I will not be the exception to the rule. God did not punish the Israelites that wandered in the wilderness for these sins just so he could turn around and say, it's okay with Stacy. It's okay with me if Stacy goes through with it. It ain't going to happen that way. And Paul also knew that some of us would be puffed up with pride and we would say, I would never do that. To which he says in verse 12, Therefore let him, uh, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All right. I want you to know, every person I know, Every pastor I know that has had to resign their church because of adultery or some other moral failure at one point in their life made this statement. I would never do that. They have pointed at someone else who made that mistake and they said, me, no, there is no way I would. And yet they did. Listen, to say I don't want to is good. To say I hope I wouldn't is wise. To say I never would there is no way. That is pride. And a person who is proud and says there is no way they would ever give in to temptation, they would never make those sorts of mistakes, that is a person who is in just the place the devil wants them so they can bring them down in a terrible way. Proverbs warns us about this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Be, be aware of your fallen nature. See, a part of, of soul care, a part of it being well with our soul, is being humble enough to say, 
that when the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That speaks to me. And I feel it. We have to walk a fine line with our sinful nature. We ought not be cast down and despair over the fact that our sinful nature wars against us all the time. At the same time, we ought not be foolish and think our sinful nature will ever stop or that we would never give in to it. A part of ensuring that it is well with my soul is knowing the extent of my own depravity. It is knowing that in the right situation and the right set of circumstances, I too could make those very same mistakes. I could drift. I could stop. I could be neglectful. And I could fall spectacularly awful ways. Be aware of your sinful nature. Secondly, focus on my relationship with Jesus. This is, again, I think something that's it's pretty basic, but pretty important. Christianity is more than a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's more than a bunch of things that we're supposed to do. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The thing is, nobody ever wants to say that they don't have a good relationship with Jesus, but the fact is, some people don't. And we would probably never tell others, my relationship with Jesus is terrible. I think we need to be honest with ourselves about it and where it is and what's going on in our lives. And I think that requires us to answer questions like this. How's my devotional life? How is my personal devotional life? Is the Word of God impacting my life? How is my prayer life? Am I spending time in prayer? Am I aware of God's presence in my daily life? Do I know that God is with me? Am I growing closer to Jesus? These are, these are phenomenal questions to honestly answer for ourselves to see how our spiritual lives are doing. And, and we've got to, we have to be honest about this. We have to, to think about it in our own lives. And I don't necessarily know that you have to tell Anyone. But you've got to be honest with it about yourself. I've got to be honest with it about myself. And I found that it is disturbingly easy for me to drift in my relationship with Jesus. And again, just as I don't know anybody that took decisive leaps into sin, I don't know anybody that took decisive leaps away from Jesus. They just cease to make their relationship with Jesus the priority of their lives. I know very few that, that stop believing in the Bible, stop believing in Jesus. But I know a bunch that stop reading the Bible and stop praying to Jesus. And these gradual things added up over time until they got really far, really far away from Jesus. And what we have to do is make it a point to constantly draw closer to Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And I want you to think about that. 
draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, here is a here's a truth that flows out of that statement. I'm as close to Jesus as I choose to be. Now, I'm not as close to Jesus as I want to be. Now, that's a that's a fallacy. Because most people who even nominally profess faith in Jesus want to be really, really close to Jesus. But they're not making the choices necessary to make that happen. But we are as close to Jesus as we choose to be. Because the promise of James is that when we draw close to Him, He always draws close to us. I mean, we could... We could look all through the Bible to see this. Think about the story of the prodigal son. He started coming home, and what did the father do when he saw him a long ways off? He ran to meet him. Think about Jesus saying, why do we come to Jesus at all? Because God deals in our hearts first. He opens our hearts. He draws us to Jesus. Always God is at work. Always God does far more than we do in being close to Jesus. And so if we're not close to Jesus, it's not that he's not keeping his end of the bargain. It's that we're not drawing close to him. We're not making the choices that draw us close to him and bring him closer to us. So what do we do? What can I do to draw close to Jesus? Now I'm going to give you some things. I'm just going to be honest with you. None of these things are revolutionary. I, I couldn't write a book about this and make a million dollars. These are basic things. Things that you've heard. But I want to promise you something. It's the basic things that work. The fancy things that sell books probably don't work. Probably aren't real. What works? Basic things. Like, read the Bible faithfully. I mean, it makes sense that if we want to draw close to God... That we would read the only book he ever wrote. In the Bible, we are revealed the mind of God, the will of God, the character of God. The nature of salvation, how salvation is attained. Everything we need for life and godliness is given to us in the Bible. And there are a lot of good books that are out there. And I read books and I read blogs from other folks and, and I think those are great. But listen, Chuck Swindoll, Max Licato, Rick Warren, Francine Rivers, those things cannot take the place of Scripture in your life. They will not bring you as close to God as the Bible will. You cannot read those at the exclusion of God's Word. Read the Bible faithfully. Secondly, pray regularly. The Bible is God speaking to us. Prayer is our speaking to God. And this is how a relationship is built. How, do you, how did you build a relationship with your spouse? Did they talk to you and you talk to them? And then they talk to you and you talk to them? And, and over and over again until you drew close to one another? If that's how, how, did you, how did you build a relationship with your best friend? How do you have a close relationship with your children? How did you build a relationship with your co-workers? If you have a relationship with them, you did it this way. You talk to them, they talk to you. You talk to them, they talk to you. 
That's how a relationship is built. If, if, our, if what we have with Jesus is a relationship, what do we need to do? We need to listen as He talks to us. We need to spend time talking to Him. Listen, you, you, can't, you can't do anything that's more important than those two things right there. There's no big things, no supernatural things, no mystical things, no secret keys. They're going to be better. Read your Bible. Pray. Another one. Let's make church a priority. Uh, if, if it's important to talk to God and let God speak to us, then it would be important for us to be in a place where we're, as a group, talking to God and letting God speak to us, which is what we do in church. We talk to God as we sing songs to Him. We talk to God as we pray to Him. God speaks to us as His Word is preached, as His Word is taught. The church is an institution that God created. The church is an institution that Jesus died to purchase. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. In all of these things, we're given the picture that the church is really, really important to Jesus. And so it should be important to the people who want to be close to Jesus as well. And then, fast occasionally. Now, fasting isn't something we hear much about. And I don't necessarily think fasting is a, a mandatory spiritual discipline, but I sure think it's an important one. Fasting is doing without something. Usually something that's either necessary or important to our lives for a period of time so that we can draw closer to God. Right? So, like, I've been on a 30-year fast from hominy. I don't think that counts for anything. Right? But if I were to fast from Doctor Who and spend my time reading my Bible, well, that would be significant. Right? So, see, not everybody can do without food. Physical things make it possible where you just can't miss a meal. And that's fine. Fasting isn't always skipping a meal to read our Bible or pray. You could fast from TV, read your Bible and pray. You could fast from social media in the time that you would normally Twitter or Facebook, read your Bible and pray. You could fast from other books in the time you would read other books, read your Bible and pray. Right? And, and that's a key. If you're going to fast from something, like if you're going to skip lunch tomorrow to fast, don't skip lunch and stay at work to get more done. That's not fasting. That's working through lunch. Fasting always includes doing away with something for a period of time so that we can use that time to draw closer to Jesus. Now, I know what you're saying. Those aren't really new. They're not. I don't know anything new. You come back next year, I'll be talking about those four things again. But these are the basics. The thing is, it's the basics that work. And you, you think about it. I can think of all kinds of books that have been written in the time I've been a pastor on spiritual health and on your relationship with God, Experiencing God, a good book, Secrets of the Vine, The Prayer of Jabez, The Purpose Driven Life. Some of those are good, some of those not so much. But do you know what has stayed the test of time as those books have gone and made it popular and then fallen away? Read your Bible. Pray. Make church a priority. Fast. Anytime you find someone who is spiritually healthy, 
You find someone that it is well with their soul. You find those four things evident in their lives. When you find somebody that has a close relationship with Jesus, you find those four things in their lives. Now, there may be other things as well. But I promise you, those four things are there. Now, if there is a key to these things, it's that you can't just do them once and expect that it's going to fix everything. I mean, think about if you want to lose weight. Does it do any good to diet for one day and go back the next day like you did before? No. If you want to run a marathon, does it do any good to run one day and never run again until marathon day? No. If you want to build big muscles, can you work out once and then suddenly be Mr. Olympia? No. What do you have to do? Well, if you want to lose weight, you have to diet day after day after day. If you want to run in a marathon, you have to run day after day after day. If you want to be able to have lift weights and have muscles, you have to lift weights day after day after day. There are, no, there are no secrets to these things. There are no keys that can unlock your potential. There is no mystical union to Christ that is found in some magical book that's coming out. There are basic things that you do. And you do them over and over and over again. And as you do them over and over and over, you'll find something starts to happen. Suddenly it will be well with your soul. You will be closer to Jesus than you've ever been. God's Word will be working in your heart and in your life. God will be speaking to you in that time. Your prayer life will be powerful. You will be aware that God is with you and that Jesus is never going to leave you nor forsake you. But that comes as you do the basic things over and over again. And then the final thing. Let's make spiritual growth a priority. Make spiritual growth a priority. The Bible's clear. God's will for every Christian is for them to grow spiritually. The Bible teaches that salvation is the beginning. And from that point on, we are to grow into the fullness of our salvation. And it's important to understand that salvation is is the beginning, but not the end. That's where everything starts, not where everything ends. From the day that we're saved... Until the day that we die or the Lord comes to get us. Our goal from that point on is to grow and be like Jesus. And that is a constant process. That is God's grand design for each of our lives. It wasn't just to save us so that we could go to heaven. If that was the case, He would save us and kill us and take us to heaven. But He saves us and then leaves us. Because there's something He wants us to do. There's something He wants us to be. There's something He wants us to become. So we become like Jesus through the process of spiritual growth. And I want us to look at a passage quickly that I think is the best on that. Turn to 2 Peter 1, page 938. We're going to start in verse 3. 
as His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to glory and virtue by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Okay, now let's stop there. Here's a basically what he's saying here. You have everything you need to grow spiritually. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit was given to you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the promises of God, you are able to grow spiritually. Every Christian should become more and more like Jesus as time goes on. Spiritual growth and maturity in Christ and Christ's likeness is not for the select few. It's not for super Christians. And the rest of us just have to kind of muddle along. All of us have everything we need and are given what is necessary to help us to become more like Christ. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Now, so, because we have all of these great promises, and because we have all of this stuff that's been given to us, here's what we have to do. To give all diligence. A spiritual growth doesn't just happen. A spiritual growth, just because you've been a Christian for 20 years, doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Now, it should work that way, but it doesn't. But it doesn't work that way in anything, does it? How many of us have worked with 30-year-olds who act like 15-year-olds? Raise your hand, right? What's true in the emotional life is true in the spiritual life. Some people who have been Christians for 30 years still act like they're 12. They've just never given all diligence to grow spiritually. Spiritual growth doesn't happen automatically or because we want it to happen. We have to, to work hard. We have to make it a priority and, and give all diligence. It carries with the idea of work really, really hard. And he goes on and he says, add to your faith. Notice faith is the beginning, right? There's salvation. That's where it starts. We believe in Jesus and Jesus saves us. There is where it starts, but it doesn't end. Then you add to your faith. Oh, lost my place. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. We don't have time to get into each one of these and what they mean. But I think they go from easiest to hardest. Right? Virtue is basically godliness. It is just being more moral. So, as we're saved, God begins to change our morality. That's an easy change. But... A genuine love for all people? Well, that's far more difficult. But it takes time. And what I believe happens is, I believe this is a cycle. I don't believe we ever reach the pinnacle and it's like, boom, you know, Rocky at the top of the stairs. Da, da, da. Doesn't happen like that. Instead, it is constant. We, we grow in our virtue. And we grow in our knowledge. And then we grow in self-control and then perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and then love. We begin to love people more. But then, there's still more virtue that we haven't got right. And so God begins to deal with us about that. And the whole process starts over and over again. And it is just a constant cycle of growth and renewal that God takes us in. And it never stops. It starts with faith on the day that we believe. And it ends when we see Him in glory. And not a minute before. And He says, for these things... If these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that makes one Christian fruitful and another Christian not so fruitful? 
But part of it is abiding in Christ. But if we abide in Christ, we'll add to our faith. And if we add to our faith, we will grow spiritually and we will be fruitful for Jesus. What, what causes someone to begin to fall away and drift away is that they stop adding to their faith. They stop working towards spiritual growth. They become barren or unfruitful in their spiritual lives. Look at what it says in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Those who fall away, before they fall away, before they begin to drift, they stop growing spiritually. They stop adding to their faith. They, they, they cease to make spiritual growth a priority. And I think the way to think about spiritual growth is to think about going up a down escalator. We live in a world where the natural current is this way. It is away from godliness. It is away from genuine love. It is away from Christ-likeness. And then our, our spirits, our sinful nature, it's also pulling us downstream. And what we're doing in trying to grow in Christ-likeness is we're going against the current. We're going up the stairs as the stairs are moving down. But if we stop, we start going down as well. And so we have to keep going. But no one who makes spiritual growth a priority, no one who's constantly seeking to add to their faith and trying to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ ever falls away. Before someone falls away, they always cease to grow. And whether, again, I think it's not due to, I don't know, I've never known, I've known a few people that have said they've arrived but I've not known many. By and large, what I've found is people are just negligent about it. Right? Because it takes effort. It's hard. You have to keep working over and over and over again. And so we stop making it a priority. And then we stop growing a little. And as we stop growing, we start going back down. And we start to drift away. I think it is fairly safe to say that largely our spiritual lives are in a state of growth or decline. I do not feel there is very little room for plateauing. We don't get somewhere and stop and stay that way long. If we stop, we start declining. So how, how is your spiritual life? Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year at this time? Have you been making every effort to add to your faith? Do you have higher moral standards? Do you know the Bible better? Do you love people more? Are you growing? Or are you declining? Your answer to that will largely tell whether or not you drift. Whether or not it stays well with your soul. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.